My uncle was a hell of a guy. I remember him telling outrageously funny stories and gesticulating with his giant hands. He was a firefighter. When he stood in his gear, he would have to stoop to walk through the doorway so the frame wouldn't knock his helmet off. His smile was so big, it made his eyes disappear, a prominent family trait that most of my aunts and uncles inherited from our grandparents. As a child, I spent a lot of time in the house he built out in the Texas Hill Country. He was a gentle, goofy giant who loved nothing more than a good story. I was sitting at the computer working on some artwork when my mom called me to the living room. Both my sisters were there, dad too, and I could see that Rachel had been crying. The room was silent. My mom told me, I hate to tell you this, but Uncle Gary died. I didn't say anything. I just sunk to the floor in shock. Uncle Gary was barely 50, a firefighter, my hero, my best buddy that slid us down the bookcase covered stairs and laundry baskets. My buddy that would shh me as a child and sit me on his knee, pointing to the deer grazing in the backyard. One that would zoom the cars through the back roads that led to the winding hills in their town. Gone. Just like that. I remember hearing the details of what happened, how he had just returned from fighting a fire and he'd collapsed in the shower. By the time my aunt, a nurse of many years, had reached him, he was gone. The funeral went by in a haze. I remember specifically feeling a giant hand on my shoulder as I sobbed. Our family is huge, so it could have been anyone behind me giving me comfort. But I knew it was him. As the years went on, there were multiple instances when I knew he was watching over me and my family. When my grandmother got extremely sick with pneumonia, she would drift in and out of lucidity. And when she wasn't all there, she would talk with Gary. My oldest nephew would make comments about the big smiling man with the beard standing behind us in a room that always waved and made him laugh. The house that they lived in was really remote. So after my cousins moved away, my aunt decided after many years that it was time to move closer to her grandkids. Understandable, but heart-wrenching to say the least especially for me, who was so close to Uncle Gary. During my stints in college, I decided to go visit her several times and never felt truly alone in that house. The first encounter was fairly easily explained, but they got to the point that it was impossible to deny that Uncle Gary was still around and very much present in his house. The bathroom that he passed within was at the top of the stairs right in front of you on the landing, and split both ways into two bedrooms. I would usually stay in the bedroom on the left, but often heard the creak of the floors as if someone were walking across the hall. I would always peek out the door to take a look, but there wasn't anything that I could see. Then I was getting ready for the day. I had the bathroom door propped open when it slowly swung shut. As a carpenter, Uncle Gary was meticulous about how things went together, so the door shutting on its own, as if it were hung improperly, was out of the question. I checked it myself. If you pushed it open, it stayed open. Then, after I'd closed it a second time to shower, it was open once again when I got out. Ben, his dog, 
stood on the landing, tongue lolling happily, staring into my room, wagging his tail. That was the afternoon that my aunt told me she was planning on selling the house. In their kitchen, they had tall open-faced shelves that held various pantry items like noodles, bags of sugar and flour, and assorted cereal boxes. I had just come downstairs to talk to my aunt about making lunch when she told me that she planned on selling the house. Out of the corner of my eye, the top bag of sugar nudged towards the side of the shelf like someone was pushing it from behind. My eyes went wide, but all my aunt said was, Gary, we talked about this. It's too hard for me to go up and down these stairs by myself anymore, and you know it. The bag nudged a little further towards the edge. The hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. Not sure he agrees with you, Mimi, I chuckled nervously. He's just throwing one of his tantrums. Doesn't want me to go, but I need to. The bag flew off the shelf like someone smacked it and exploded on the floor. I yelped. But all Mimi did was glare and say, Gary, not okay, before shaking her head and retrieving a broom and dustpan. I was shaken, obviously, but I had told Mimi I would stay another couple days while we were on break, and not long after, the tension in the kitchen broke, and she and I chatted about lunch and what to do for dinner. Later that night, after Mimi had gone to bed, I sat in the office with the TV on, Uncle Gary was a devout Christian and wouldn't have approved of me watching some of the late-night TV shows that were airing. But hey, he wasn't around anymore, and I was a college kid. Since I couldn't sleep, I found a mildly entertaining bit of top 10 worst criminal clips and settled in for another night of insomnia. I set the remote on the table and got ready to laugh. But then, the TV flicked several channels backwards to Nick at night. Confused, I picked up the remote again and changed it back to what I was originally watching. Like clockwork, it changed back to Nickelodeon. Finally, I got the picture after several more attempts to try to change the channel to what I wanted to watch and turned it off. Then I heard a thump, which made me jump. But Ben stood up and wagged his tail again, like someone was just around the corner. I stood up and turned the light on for upstairs when the hairs on my head stood on end again. Lining the staircase on both sides were countless books, and one of them had fallen onto the staircase. I picked it up and read it, and before I knew it, I was asleep. Nowadays, the family has regular run-ins with Uncle Gary. He's the first to appear when something is happening, like when someone's really sick or dying, or when there's a near-death experience and young children in the family regularly talk about a smiling guy that vaguely resembles a lumberjack. His firefighting team says they see him in the station from time to time, and sometimes I'll hear his voice in my head clear as day. I guess he's been assigned as the family guardian, but I know that one day he will be there to guide me to the other side, like he's done for the rest of my family. It helps knowing he's looking out for me. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. And this is Ghoul Intentions. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Uh, so, first, let me say thank you to. I just had the name up and then I put it down. 
um, to Sleepy Badger Badger for our opening story that I <laughs> totally have already read <laughs> and am not at all planning to read when we're done because I have had two children in the house and I haven't had a chance. It's to a read good it. story, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys I, I loved it. It's, it's, <laughs> I just know you did. It is a good story. <laughs> it's kind of sweet, and it's kind of sweet and fun, and and just a little bit of creepy, of course, but as as necessary. But it's sweet because we need it sweet because we going dark on we're this dark. episode. We're going, we're going so dark, so yes. we needed something to kind of. Uh, you know, spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go That's down, right. as it were. Oh, Callista was singing that the other day. She was like, I really like that song. And then I was like, I showed them that movie. So God, I love Mary Poppins. Making a difference. I love yeah, Mary Poppins they, so much. They want to watch Popeye again. They oh. really love Spaceballs. Really love Spaceballs. Um, I just rewatched Back that for the, the first time in ages. Like, I think it's been 20 oh, years since I've seen Spaceballs. So and I watched good. it again. I'm like, oh, this is cute. This is fun. It holds up pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Back to the Future is super fun, too. Oh, that's such a good movie. Watching that again. Yeah, it was really a good time. I love it. Yeah. So, okay, because we get dark, our title is actually from our patron, Michaela. She suggested this title, and so we're going with it because it's really appropriate for today's episode. Oh, yes, it is. And that is um, All the Devils Are Here which is from the full quote is, hell is empty and all the devils are here. It's from the that, Tempest. Which is Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Good old Willie. Well, no. Good old Willie. Willie Daily Shakespeare. Willie Tremblestick. <laughs> yes. Love it. Tempest was um, Tempest is always one of my favorites because uh, it was the first Shakespeare play I ever sat down to to read with my grandmother, mm-hmm. who was a lit professor. She was like, you should read this because it's got wizards and shit in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, it does? So I was super into Ooh. it. And I was like, it right. does. It's got wizards and fairies and, and ogres and all or whatever the Caliban is. But it's like. Oh, my. It's so fun. It's uh, It takes place yeah. on a fantasy island. So it's like, yeah. It's a great it's story. Great. It's a great story. Yeah. I can't remember what first one. I just remember being in college and being really intimidated to perform Shakespeare. And we had two different professors. And so the other professor told her class. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is, we have to respect it. This is very important work, blah, blah, blah. And so everybody was terrified to do it. And then I was lucky enough to have the professor that said, okay, so let me tell you this about Shakespeare. He's dead. He doesn't give a shit how you do it. So you can do whatever you want. It's okay if you don't do it a certain way because he's dead. And I also and I was like, feel like, I like it. And I also feel like <laughs> Shakespeare would appreciate He's like, it's theater. Like, I don't want, it's right. theater. Don't be conservative about it. Like, blow it up. Like, make shit fun. Like, I think Shakespeare would approve. How many sex jokes and fart jokes and, and you know. so many. It's great. So I'm like, I don't feel like Shakespeare was in, by any means a prude. So I think no. Shakespeare would watch a production and like, I think, I think Shakespeare would be bored to tears with a production that took it too seriously. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so um, that I guess I've got more of the the Shakespeare side and you've got more of the devil's side on today's <laughs> yes, episode. That's true. And so my episode, mm-hmm. we were talking about we didn't have anything in mind this week. And, um, you know, sometimes we have better weeks than others. And Michael's been a little stressed out this week. I've uh, so, been in a mood. Been yeah, in a it mood. happens. It happens. We, yeah, we've all been there. But I was like, "What can I do that will cheer Michael up?" And that's when I decided <laughs> to do 
I was like, well, it should probably be British. (laughs) (laughs) Theatrical. Ooh, a theater. Okay, a British theater that's haunted um, and maybe really old. And so I was like, okay. So I found (laughs) the perfect one. These are a few of my favorite things. (laughs) I know. It's good. Look at us. We love her right now. Sugar, favorite thing. So I am doing the Theater Royal Drury Lane. Ew. So my sources are Wikipedia, Dark Tales blog, and Seeks Ghosts. Okay. Nice. So commonly known as Drury Lane, Theater Royal Drury Lane, which is hard to say. (laughs) It's hard to say. Yeah. It's a West End theater and grade one listed building in Covent Garden, London, England. The building is the most recent in a line of four theaters, which were built at the same location, the earliest of which dates back to, or dated back to, 1663. Ooh, so before the Great Fire. Old as hell. Old as hell. Okay, I'm glad you brought up. The Great Fire. We'll get there. Oh, uh, yes. So it is the oldest theater site in London still in use for theater specifically. Oh, that's it's also so awesome. what m- some might refer to as haunted as fuck. <laughs> haunted as a fuck. Haunted as the fuck. Okay, so <laughs> before we get into the theater starting, let's talk a little bit about the interregnum. Interregnum. It's hard to say. What is in I N. T-E-R-R-E-G-N-U-M. I don't know that word. Interregnum. Okay. This is a period in English history. I'm sure British people are just like, you fucked that up. But I don't care. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm American. I drive a pickup. I can go how fast I want. Colonia. That's not true. I don't. I don't have a truck. Okay. The start. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about it. So the start of this period of time was the execution of Charles I in 1649. Ouch. So that's when it started, and okay. it lasted until the arrival of his son, Charles II, in London on May 29th, 1660, okay. which marked the start of the Restoration. Ah. So there was this period of time where there was no monarch, right? Uh, Cromwell was in charge. The Puritans were like, <laughs> no we're going to make— No king, no yeah. king, fa-la-la-la-la. Oh, but <laughs> Cromwell was a son of a bitch. Yeah, but it was more like, no king, let's stop having fun. <laughs> <That's kind laughs> no of king, what it is. you there, stop the drinking, stop the having stop copulation. Stop it. So it only lasted 11 years, right? That's a pretty short period of time when you consider uh, history as a whole. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yes. it was an important time in the history of the British Isles. It was basically a time where conservative leaders, because that's who was in charge at the time, mm-hmm. they basically just threw shit at a wall to see what would stick. <laughs> like, let's try this. Oh, no, that let's kill work. people okay, let's for this. Let's, let's burn let's people for this. And it was really, it was more like how they were going to make parliament work. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Without a without a monarch, all of it, how were they going to, who was going to lead? How were they going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Cromwell's son ended up taking over after he died. There was a murder plot against him anyway. Like, it was very dramatic. Um, and then also when you have a son taking charge, why is this not just another monarchy? Blah, blah, blah. Right. There was a lot of fighting for various reasons because of it. But, the imp- and you can look into that, you know, for more of that historical accuracy part, uh, political-wise. But the important part of this for our story is that puritanical views and morality were imposed on the whole of England at this time. So that's like it never, the pilgrims it never came and were well. like, we're going to tell you what you can and can't do. Ugh. 
So all and and where they were more tolerant with other forms of Christianity. Right. So it wasn't Mm. so much let's kill all the Catholics or these Catholics or those Catholics, like who's not Catholic (laughs) enough and who's too Catholic, you know, all of that. (laughs) They were more tolerant with that. But all theater and gambling were banned. Right. They were the same thing. Now, interestingly, interestingly, opera was allowed because it was considered virtuous. And it was like, opera is dirty as hell. Do I you mean, guys so not watch dirty. it? I just think, man, it's when the Puritans try to take over, they're so arbitrary. Like, that's, okay, you can't have that, but you can have this. And you can, yeah. it's like someone just goes, oh, uh, it just boils down to one person in power has personal taste. And they're like, I just don't like that. But I like opera. Yeah. Opera's cool. We can keep opera. Right. I do like singing. Um, and interestingly enough, too, like holidays, Christmas and Easter were suppressed. Oh, yeah, because yeah, they were considered right. pagan derivatives. Right. And they and they were. Right. So, and they were. Uh, they were, but it's like they were fun. Come on, guys. Come on. Yeah. What's the, what's the, yeah, the, so it's interesting when people old, are like, uh, oh, they're taking the Christ out of Christmas. And it's like, actually, we we're taking we're, we're taking the mass out of it too. <laughs> <laughs> we're taking it all. We're taking it all. You it's can't the, have the it. Old, what's the um, old saying? Like Puritan, uh, Puritanism is the deep seated fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of suppression of the arts. Not a lot of support for the arts. Does that sound familiar at all? I can't even imagine. Weird. So Charles II was returned to the monarchy, and when he was. He soon issued what was called letters, a letters patent to two parties licensing the formation of new acting companies. Yay. So you had two parties. Here's the licensing patent that allowed them to license theater companies. Yes. Nice. Um, one of those went to Thomas Killigrew, whose company became known as the King's Company and who built a new theater in Drury Lane. The other one went uh, to someone else, and it was called, I believe, the Duke's Company. We'll get into it later, but it's not in my face right now. <laughs> but uh, And so it was those two, and they were rivals. Um, but what ended up happening, the letters patent sort of granted those two parties a monopoly mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And that lasted mm-hmm. until 1843. But let's move on to what I want. I know you want to hear about the building. Of course. Okay, so they built this new playhouse. Uh Uh, They don't Uh know who the architect was for the first building, but it opened on May 7th, 1663, and was known from the placement of the entrance as the Theater Royal in Bridges Street. The building was a three-tiered wooden structure, so 112 feet long, or 34 meters, Mm -hmm. and 59 feet wide, or 18 meters, and it could hold an audience of 700 just a good size. Yeah, that's very yeah, good size. a good size. size at the time. Yeah. Um, the king himself frequently attended the theater's productions, as did Samuel Pepys, P-E-P-Y-S, uh, whose private diaries provide much of what we know oh, of yes. London theater in the 1660s. Yep. So diaries are important. This is my note. Diary. I'm not going to keep a diary, but y'all he should. He was like Samuel uh, uh, Pepys, Peeps, whatever his last name is. Yeah. Um, like He was kind of the... Uh, he was the per- uh, he was like the blogger of his day. He was yeah. He, he was, was like a he was con- very he was, he was very he was gossipy. An influencer. He was yeah. He was he one was of the so, first influencers. He was yeah. very gossipy. Like you know, uh, he's a bit. If you were around today, he'd run TMZ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He and and I read some of his descriptions of it, but it was like, um, oh well, you know, you can't hear the bass notes because the 
it's underneath and they really need to fix that. And it's like, all right, because of the pit where the orchestra played, you couldn't hear the bass notes. So anyway, (laughs) but because of his bitchiness, we have a better idea of what it looked like because he wrote it down in his diary. Mm. So performances usually began at 3 p.m., to take advantage of the daylight because they were in open sky. Like, what? they're not going to put a spotlight on anybody. It's <laughs> they can't. 1663. don't have spotlights. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the main floor for the audience, the pit, had no roof in order to let in the light. Uh, a glazed dome was built over the opening, but according to one of Pepys' diary entries... The dome was not entirely effective at keeping out the elements. He and his wife were forced to leave the theater once to take refuge from a hailstorm. <laughs> theater was dangerous, y'all. It was dangerous. <laughs> it actually it actually required a bit of bravery to sit through. Yeah. The Great Plague of London struck in the summer of 1665, mm. which is there. I find this very interesting mm-hmm. because the Theater Royal, along with all other public entertainment, was shut down by order of the crown on June 5th. Huh. Here we are. Weird. History like repeating itself. I don't see yeah. the connection. Right. If they could do it, we're going to be fine. They could just the do it. Actually, they just, you know what they needed? Zoom. Zoom. And that would have changed everything. So <laughs> the theater remained. Cl- and, and here's the thing, too, is they didn't. It's not like they could listen to podcasts or watch TV. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like. They what? just had to stay at home and stare at each other. Uh, but the and the theater remained closed for eighteen months until the autumn oh, of sixteen sixty six. Oh, which was not a good year either. Yeah, and so not just be because thinking, of the six six six. It's because oh yeah, it's a terrible yeah. Year. You might be thinking the theater was made of wood, and uh, it was a theater. Yeah, and the Great Fire of London was in September of sixty six. And it was a great fire, the best. It was so good. Tremendous. It was an amazing, great plague, great fire. It was amazing. So surely the theater must have burned down in the great fire. Wrong. It was actually west of the city. It was West End. So it was too far west to be hit by the the fire. So it survived the fire. Yeah, and so it was fine for a few years. It burned down six years later. (laughs) And so we survived the great fire of London. We are untouchable until another fire comes along. I know. Whoopsies. This fire is in the West End. (laughs) Uh, And that fire royally fucked the king's company. And it had to merge with his rival. Oh. Uh, and there's some stories, too, about, like, actors that would were waiting for better contracts. And they'd be like, oh, if you're not going to give it to me, then I'm going to go to Duke's company. Right? <laughs> I don't know why they sound like that. But they do in my head. So <laughs> sound like I'm going Lee. to Duke's company if you don't give me the money I want. I'm going to um, Duke's. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> uh, they merged with Duke's at the time and eventually were completely... Um, absorbed by that company. Mm. The second Theater Royal building was finished in 1674, and it was a complex that occupied 13,134 square feet. The complex contained a shit ton of rooms. This is something, too, I hope everybody else is interested in. I included it for Michael specifically. I need it, guys. If you don't like it, just (laughs) fast forward to the ghost stuff. So, okay. It has it included storage space and dressing rooms used oh. by the management and performers. Say it slow. Nearly 70 <laughs> people in total, and uh, as well as some 50 technical staff members. So there's 
lots of storage and space for all of them. Additionally, three rooms were provided for scripts, including a library for their storage, a separate room for copying actors' parts, and a special library for the theater's account books, ledger books, and music scores. Nice. See, they're really... It's just, if you're going to run a theater, do it right. Yeah, that's right. Now, we're not 100% of, uh, sure of what the theater looked like, but based on some writings at the time, it's believed that the Drury Lane, uh, which is it's either Theater Royal Drury Lane, that's what it's known as, it had a circular line of boxes surrounding its pit. Mm. The seating was divided by class, and tickets were priced accordingly. Box seats used by the nobility and wealthy gentry cost five shillings. The benches in the pit, where some gentry sat, but also critics and scholars, cost three shillings. Tradesmen and professionals occupied the first gallery with seats costing two shillings, while servants and other normies, (laughs) that's what I call normies, occupied the the rabble, Um, they occupied the one shilling seats in the upper gallery. Right. Nosebleed mm. section. Yeah. Seats yeah. were not numbered and were offered on a first come, first serve basis. Right. Makes sense. By the it's general seating, depending upon your section. Um, <laughs> by the end of the 18th century, the theater was in need of some assistance. So it was demolished in 1791. It still was up for quite a while. Mm. A third theater was designed. Here we get into the architects for you. It was designed by Henry Holland Mm, and opened mm. on March 12th, 1794. In the design of the theater boxes, Henry Holland asked John Linnell for assistance. Henry Holland and Charles Heathcote Tatham were also involved in the design process. This was a cavernous theater. It was fucking huge, and it accommodated more than 3,600 spectators. Damn. Huge. New technology facilitated the expansion. Iron columns replaced bulky wood, supporting five tiers of galleries. Five tiers of seating, basically. The stage was large as well, 83 feet, 25 meters wide, and 92 feet deep, 28 meters deep. Mm. Holland, the architect, said it was on a larger scale than any other theater in Europe, except for churches. It was the tallest building in London at the time. Oh, that's so fucking cool. I love it. I love it. Now, okay, so now we're used to a lot of details. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And the wood was brown, and then, like, there was this painted area. No. Okay, so uh, now, if you've ever been to a Broadway show, you know a lot of Broadway theaters are huge. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was pretty controversial to have such a large theater. Stage was an intimate experience, which is actually how I prefer to watch theater. I love an intimate stage setting. And I love a black can... box theater. Like, I love, like, yes, Theater in the Round. Yeah. Like, this is really small because it's just, there's something truly special about it. But but that's yeah. that's me. I mean, if it's a really big, spectacular, like, Broadway show or something, then right. I, I, I want a big, you know, I want a big crowd because I, pr- I kind of feed I... off of the crowd's energy, too. Yeah, I can it, appreciate but... a big production. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But for, I'll say, straight theater, which is what this movie was, or movie, <laughs> this movie theater, was what this theater, <laughs> what this um, drive-in, <laughs> what this drive-in was for, uh, this theater was for uh, non-musical, mainly, yeah. um, non, non-operatic, non so straight theater. Now, it yeah. does, it has had plenty of musicals performed there, so don't mm-hmm. get it twisted, but it was more for theater. Uh, productions and less than than opera, right? That's what mm. it was for specifically. So, 
Uh, but it was really controversial uh, at the time. Um, and, you know, they kind of had to work with it. And also, it was a larger space. It cost more to run. And the sure. company ended up struggling with funds because of that. Mm. Mm. And then an assassination attempt against <gasps> King George III took place at the theater oh, on May right. 15th, 1800. Right. That's where that happened. Oh, shit. I forgot. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. James Hadfield fired two pistol shots from the pit toward the king sitting in the royal box. The shots missed him by inches. Hadfield, having been jostled by a Mr. Dite, Hadfield was quickly subdued, and George, apparently unruffled, ordered the performance to continue. <laughs> because he was a crazy person. He was. He was He was a tough old bird. For he being was, out of his yeah. goddamn mind for most of his, like, most of the, like, at least the last, like, 10, 15 years of his life. Like, he was right. a tough son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on February 24th in 1809, despite fire safety precautions, here we go again, we're at a theater. Fires. The theater burned down once more. Uh-oh. This is one of my favorite stories about that. On being <laughs> encountered, drinking a glass of wine in the street while watching the fire. R.B. Sheridan, who owned the theater that at the time, was famously reported to have said, a man may surely be allowed to take a glass of wine by his own fireside. <laughs> <laughs> now he doesn't run a theater or anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, and it, I mean, it's such a more, like, powerful statement when you realize the fire ruined him financially. yeah. Uh, you know, he, he knew was, what was happening when it was, he was burning down. He was nobly resigned. Yes, yes. So Sheridan had a friend, Samuel Whitbread, who was a brewer that he asked to help out. Whitbread was like, sure, but you got to get the fuck out. Like, you can't be a management. You can't help me get the fuck out. And Sheridan <laughs> was like, that's cool. I'm out. <laughs> so thanks for your help. Bye. <laughs> so uh, in my movie, then Sheridan tap danced away into the sunset. So... Da, 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 da. <laughs> Woo! The new, the new theater made some concessions towards intimacy, though. It now only seats 3,060 people, which mm. is like 550 fewer than the earlier building. Mm, mm, mm. So huge difference. <laughs> huge. Uh, on September 6, 1817, gaslighting was extended from the audience area to the stage, making it the first British theater to be gaslit throughout. Some more details for those who've been to the theater or know the area. In 1820, the portico that still stands at the theater's front entrance on Catherine Street was added. The colonnade running down the Russell side of the street was of uh, the building was added in 1831. Yes. The cool. theater was closed in 1939 because of the outbreak of the Second World War. Mm, yeah. During the war, it served as the headquarters for the Entertainment's National Service Association, sustaining some minor bomb damage. It reopened in 1946 with Noel Coward's Pacific 1860. The building was grade one listed on February 1958. Basically, that means it's a historic building of exceptional interest that may not be demolished, extended, or altered without special permission from the local planning authority. In the U.S., we call that being listed with the local historic society. Yes. Right. Right. And, you know, it's all fun and games until you want to, like, paint something and even if it needs to be painted you still have to get permission <laughs> right <laughs> so it takes an act of congress yeah so in 2000 20 years ago the theater royal drury lane was purchased by andrew lloyd weber oh he I did owns not. the theater now yes. i did not know the, that 
Uh-huh. The seating plan for the theater remains the same, and the auditorium is still one of the largest in London's West End. Huh. In 2013, Lloyd Webber revealed a four million pound restoration of the theater to mark its 350th anniversary. Using a team of 350 years, fuck. That's fucking uh, crazy, that's awesome. I know. Using a team of specialists, the detailed restoration had has returned the public areas of the Rotunda, Royal Staircases, and Grand Saloon, all of which were part of the 1810 theater, to their original Regency style. Nice. Like most haunted theaters, it's believed the Theater Royal Drury Lane is one of the most haunted theaters in the world. Because actors just don't know when to quit giving encores. That's right. Uh, And while (laughs) most of the time, most haunted in the world, just as I've found and as you've found too, it just means is haunted. You know what I mean? Like, it's like most haunted in the world, and it's like, that's a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's just, like, that's not... <laughs> yeah. Every place tries to say it's the most haunted, and I'm pretty sure the most right. haunted place is like, doesn't doesn't feel the need to tout its title. Exactly. Um, but this one is known as that. It's on all of the lists. However, so much shit happens in this particular theater that when a cast member sees one of the many ghosts that frequent the theater, it's supposed to be good luck for the show. That's fun. For example, The King and I, South Pacific, and Oklahoma, woohoo, uh, are just three productions that saw The Gray Man specifically before they opened, and they were all massive hits. Yes. During the longest run uh, at the theater, uh, Lady Saigon, so the longest running show. Or Miss Saigon. Um, Is it Miss Saigon? Miss Saigon. Miss, you're right, yeah. Miss Saigon. I don't know why it says Lady Saigon. Maybe maybe they're like, well, let's give her a different time. I mean, maybe there was an earlier... I don't know. I've, yeah, I it's thought Miss it was, Saigon. Okay. I was like, that. it sounded funny coming out of my face, too. I was like, that's not right. So, okay, it ran the <laughs> longest of all of the shows, I believe, there. Awesome. But every time there was a change in cast, the man in gray would appear to someone. Oh. And so they always took it as like, it's a good thing man to gray, see. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so who is the man in gray? Yeah. Yes? Well, before we get into him, let us set the scene. According to this fantastic article called Inside the World's Most Haunted Theater by Andrew Dixon on TheGuardian.com, actor Clive Carter had a strange nocturnal experience. He was in his dressing room at the theater preparing to go on as Mr. Salt in the musical Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. While he was putting the finishing touches to his costume and makeup, another actor popped in to say hello. The TV was playing quietly in the corner of the room. Halfway through their conversation, Carter suddenly noticed the channel on the TV change. He and his colleague glanced at each other in bewilderment. Neither of them was near enough to touch it. Mm. It changed channels again. We started freaking out, he said, looking genuinely perturbed. Dixon, the writer of the article, went backstage with Carter to see where it all went down. According to him, quote, At lunchtime on a busy, bright day, sun streaming in through the window, it's hard to picture this as the scene of a paranormal event. But Carter is adamant. It happened when we started talking about the Drury Lane ghosts. We got the right channel back. But as soon as we started talking about the ghosts, it happened again. No chance it was an electrical fault, I ask, or problem with the signal. Carter looks at me like I'm a goggling idiot. There wasn't even a remote. Right. Dixon wasn't all that impressed with the story, 
Uh, <laughs> he sounds a bit like us, right? He's a little <laughs> jaded from all the, the theater ghosts that we hear in the plays. We're <laughs> right. used to hearing stories about footsteps. So when someone's like, oh, um, I heard footsteps, we forget how terrifying disembodied footsteps can be true. to people who aren't used to hearing them, <laughs> right? True, true, true. Carter, to his credit, did say he doesn't necessarily believe in ghosts. He just knows what he saw. Interesting. So, I like it. Yeah. Dixon goes on a tour of the theater looking for ghosts. Not much happens while above ground, so they head to the lower levels of the theater where Dixon writes. But it's in the bowels of the theater that I get a more realistic sense of why old theaters might inspire so many eerie tales. As we descend through an Escher-like myriad of staircases and along dank, dingy passageways, I'm surprised to realize how much I wouldn't want to find myself alone here at night. Ooh. Below ground level, we are near the 18th century foundations. Displayed in one corridor are charred beams and what looks, alarmingly, like a human femur found during restoration. Oh! Outside in Covent Garden, the streets are crowded with tourists and lunching office workers. Down here, accompanied by the knocking of what I hope is the heating pipes, there is a definite chill in the air. <laughs> so, with that in mind, let's talk about the man in gray. Yes. This particular gent has been seen since the Regency era, which was when the future George IV, right. George the Fourth, ruled as regent due to George the Third, you know, being George Going the Third. He's going mad. Throwing going his, mad. He was throwing all of his champagne glasses right into the fireplace. There's a really good there were, movie about it star, uh, starring uh, yes. Helen Mirren and uh, uh, Nigel Hawthorne and uh, uh, Rupert Everett called The Madness of King George. And I yes. tell, I highly, highly recommend it. It's a wonderful film based on a play. It was called The play is called The Madness of King George III. When they made the movie and it came out in the States, they had to take the three off because they didn't think people would see it because they hadn't seen the first two. Ballad. Um, Time-wise, time we're talking anywhere from 1795 to 1820. Some of it lasts later, even after he, after George III died. It just, and that more is about fashion and style for the Regency yeah. period. Yeah. But the period of time that he was taking over was 1795, maybe a little after to 1820. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this ghost has been seen since the late 1700, early 1800s. That's so cool. Okay, actors, firemen, theater managers, construction workers, and staff have all reported encounters with the man in gray, the theater's most famous supernatural resident. Mm. I know this is going to come as a surprise, but this dude, he is all in gray. That's why he's called the gray. Oh, gray. oh yeah. it <laughs> makes sense. It does. The apparition <laughs> is of a young man who is seen limping. He's been described as wearing the clothing of an 18th century nobleman, including a ruffled white shirt, a gray riding cloak, and tricorn hat worn over a powdered wig. The ghost is usually seen during the day wandering the upper circle in what seems to be a residual haunting. The upper circle, remember, that was for, that was the one shilling, right? Right. Uh, it's really high up in the balcony. That's the nosebleed section, mm, mm. right? The man in gray's appearances always seem to follow a specific route, too, which ends with him passing through a solid wall. Many staff and contractors working in the high seats of the theater have reported electronic devices shutting off or otherwise malfunctioning as well. In 1939, half the cast of The Dancing Years was on stage for a photo call when they witnessed the man in gray cross the upper circle and then disappear through the wall. 
<laughs> I like his now, style. I know. It's good. But at the same time, I'm like, this is a theater that seats 3,000. How likely are you to be able to see up there? But if nobody's up there and all the lights are up, you could probably see it. I mean, but, but to be fair, like, if you, to be fair, uh, to be when, fair, when you're in a theater alone or, you know, you're, you're looking, like, it's it's surprisingly how easy it is to see someone when they're the only person. Yes, that's in the, true. Like, they stick out like a sore thumb because you're, like, mm-hmm. not used to seeing uh, the movement or whatever. So I, I, it's easy for me. Like, even in a big venues, like, you're like, what is that thing moving over there? It stands out because there shouldn't be anything there. So, yeah, I, I guess I... I, I I can see that. I could see that easily. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, the, the half of that cast saw him. On rare occasions, his ghost has been seen sitting on an end seat in the fourth row near the central gangway of the upper circle. So maybe he's not all that residual after all. Or there's two versions of his spirit haunting. One is residual and one might be intelligent. Or maybe the residual haunting just takes a while to get through. I don't know. It's theater. Can you imagine, like, being a ghost and ha- being a residual, uh, like, having to, de- like, being a- an active, like, intelligent haunting and having to also deal with your residual self? So you're constantly, right. like, telling, don't mind me. That's just me. <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> please ignore me. Uh, but not me, but, like, the other me. The other me. Like, yeah. he's, I don't mean to be, he doesn't mean to be rude. That's just, he doesn't know you're there. Someone write this play. I want to watch it. <laughs> um, I'm working on it. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Uh, one cleaner that was new to the theater royal encountered the man in gray. Thinking he was an actor, she put down her supplies and spoke to him, at which point he just disappeared. Confused, she looked around and was astonished to see him vanish into an upper circle wall. As well as sightings, doors being slammed have been blamed on the man in gray, as well as electronic devices that have acted erratically throughout the theater. Who is he, though? Well, most accounts agree, a.k.a. legend says... That the man in gray is the ghost of an unfortunate man found bricked up into a small side passage within the theater in 1848. From his remains, it appears the man had been stabbed to death. And you can find all these stories about, oh, it was a love triangle or, you know, he was, that's what did it. A woman, the love of some woman or the queen even or, you know, different stuff like that. Um, But there's really no way to know. Um, Sure, yeah. And the the commonly told story is, the route that the man in gray t- uh, takes when he passes through a wall, that is along the path that would lead to where his corpse was found. Hmm. Now, I can't find anything that records that as fact. It is just a legend. But so many people have seen this man. I think who he is is not as important as the fact that he seems to be there. Hmm. Right? He's a tulpa. Um, and He's that's a tulpa. One of those that it Actors have true. created a tulpa. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Well, and then you think, too, like, if that really was a femur backstage or, like, down in the in the bowels of the theater. Right. From, from the original. Like, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Because, I mean, it would have been in the, in the 1800s that he would have died, so we may not have access to that information. Exactly. So, I mean, who knows? Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, this is very much a... Um, a story that is word of mouth, right? Sure, as most yeah. ghost stories are, but yes, still for, for him to be seen for so long, that's kind of cool. I still think mm-hmm. you know, even sometimes if it's if there wasn't a real ghost originally, like eventually there becomes one because so many mm-hmm. people believe and start having the experiences. I I honestly believe in the ability of the collective mind to create something that wasn't there before just because they expect to see it. Right. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, now 
There are performers whose long careers were closely linked to Drury Lane that are also said to linger on there. Actor and clown Joseph Grimaldi appeared frequently in pantomimes at the theater. He died in 1837, the cause of death recorded as a visitation by God, which was basically (laughs) an attempt to explain him passing away during the night at the age of 58. God. What a a weird cause of death. A visitation by God. Like God came. He wasn't hey. ready. He, he wasn't, wasn't, he wasn't ready. ready. He didn't have. He didn't have cold beer. <laughs> God, Nothing. God he was, was not prepared. God was ill prepared for direct visitation. Uh, so anyway, he died at fifty-eight. You know, my dad died at fifty-eight of a heart mm. attack. So I immediately like that's probably what happened. My dad was visited by God. He would love to know that people would say we're saying that. <laughs> stories. Sur- stories surround Grimaldi. Uh, they appear to have contributed significantly to the belief that supernatural appearances in the theater are good luck. He seems to be a benign spirit that tries to guide and support nervous actors. A hand on the back or, you know, a hand on the shoulder for someone who's nervous or, you know, hearing applause when someone's doing a good job. Well, that makes sense. He likes Um, making people laugh in life. So now he's like, I want to be a comfort and there are also stories of him of feeling someone kick you in the butt when you're not doing your putting your all into the performance. Um, I, I feel like maybe directors would have posted, would have created that one. If you don't do your best, you're going to get a swift kick in the butt from Grimaldi. <laughs> I can just bet he's a clown, so I can see him be like, you know, like, wah, wah, yeah, right. like it's all in good wah, fun. Um, Grimaldi was also a pioneer of the art of mime. Hmm. So it's probably not all that surprising that his disembodied white face has also been seen floating around the theater. <laughs> Hashtag bitches and white face. <laughs> um, now, there are some things I read said that he had wanted his head to be cut off. Oh, that sounds... Like, and like, that's why that, it would be floating. I mean, that sounds like an actor. Yeah, but I don't know if I necessarily buy that. Um, it, it just is a weird request to make. Yeah. Um, so I feel like maybe that's just added for why you would see this floating face around. Is oh, clearly it's because his head wasn't attached. It's like you could still see the floating face. <laughs> you cannot see him. You see the makeup. The face isn't yeah, floating. Just makes the makeup sense. is. Yeah. But anyway, huh. another performer said to haunt the theater is Charles Macklin, a popular Irish actor who appeared extensively at Drury Lane during the 18th century, in 1735, during an argument. With fellow actor Thomas Hollum over a wig, he shouted, God damn you for a blackguard, scrub, rascal, rascal. That's what it was. And then he thrust the tip of his cane towards the man's face. Unfortunately, the tip of the cane punctured the man's eye and Ah. killed him. Ah. While tried for murder, he was only convicted of manslaughter. Since his death, which is believed to have been as uh, he was a hundred Good Way back then, Lord. even. So they, it's believed that he died at over 100 years of age. But since then, his ghost has been seen wandering backstage close to the area where he had killed Hallam. Oh, God. Hallam's ghost not seen. The man who killed Hallam's ghost seen. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I it? guess, I mean, I guess if you, if you, the energy created by an intense experience, like I'm sure. He carried that with him for the rest of his life. The idea, I killed yeah. a man. I killed a man. So it makes more sense that he would haunt the place than the person that was killed. Yeah, because if it truly was man. For that yeah. poor bastard, it was like all a matter of a few seconds. And for him, it was like, oh, my God, I killed someone. And he took that with him for the rest of his hundred years mm-hmm. of life. 
Ooh, damn. Yeah. Uh, Dan Leno was another regular performer in Drury Lane, appearing as a pantomime dame and clog dancer. In his late 30s, Leno's mental health deteriorated badly. Mm. He eventually passed away at the age of 43, before which he displayed increasing symptoms, including severe incontinence. He would cover the resultant smell with a strong lavender perfume, which is said to be frequently smelled around the theater to this day. I hope to God that it is just the lavender and not the piss or shit or shit and piss that goes with it, because that is not going to make lavender smell good. No, it's just like, right. oh, sounds You're like not fooling anyone. It doesn't cover anything. It just smells like someone shat a potpourri bowl. That's right. Nobody wants that. Um, this comedian, Stanley Lupino, claims to have seen the ghost of Dan Leno in a dressing room. Staff have also heard a load tapping or probably loud, a loud tapping or banging noise from a <laughs> dressing room. Load tapping. Uh, thought to have once been Leno's, and it's believed it's the sound of him rehearsing his clog dancing routine. <laughs> That's so cool. There were so many opportunities for actors back then. You had your, I know. You, you had your so holoquinades, your pantomime, your your clog dancing. You could uh, drag. I mean, uh, we yeah. would have been we would have been so set as actors back in that uh, day, Jamie. Right? Come on, let's face well, it. Well, you would have been. <laughs> okay, sorry, I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> I, would not, I would not have You been. wouldn't have been allowed. Sorry. Sorry. Um, sorry. But it's all right. I appreciate the thought. Uh, fast, fast forward a few hundred years, and then I would have been fine. Um, now, a lot of these stories are hard to verify. I didn't find a lot of specific, I saw a man in gray stories online. Mm-hmm. However, those it's spans a whole lot of time, and actors aren't always ready to say what happened. Like, they're not going to go on Reddit and be like, this is what happened to me, you know? Yeah. Um, I imagine if they want to be taken as serious actors and don't want, and they don't want to do anything to make people think they're just crazy, they might not say anything, right? That whole, oh, you're an actor, you must be crazy thing. Hi, I've been there. You've been there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You might be not, if you're trying to make your career, you might want to kind of avoid that. Right. Which is why it's comforting to hear those actors who don't have to worry about taken seriously anymore tell their stories. Hmm. A la Sir Patrick Stewart ah, that's in 2009 awesome. when he reported seeing the spirit of 19th century actor, playwright, and comedian John Baldwin Buckstone at the Theatre Royal in Haymarket. So different hmm. theater. Um, it's also in London. but And it's Buckstone, so you probably, they say Buxton. Buxton. <laughs> Buxton. Yeah, he reportedly saw Buckstone standing in the wings during his performance of Waiting for Godot with Sir Ian McKellen. Oh, wow. Yes. That's a great production, too. Like, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, Also in that theater, Dame Judi Dench and Sir Donald Sinden have also reported seeing Buckstone's spirit. Ooh, I love it. Right? And that's I a different theater, but it is nice to hear these people say, oh, no, 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 yeah, I totally saw someone there. And you don't always get that. Yeah, because people don't you know. want to talk about that kind of thing anymore. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it's it's so cool. It's so validating when you hear someone that August, that established yeah. go, oh, yes, I've had experience. Because I think if you if you spend a significant amount of time in the theater life, you're going to see shit. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, it's it, all energy, it comes right? with the territory it's... because and and I don't say this, you know, to be self-aggrandizing, but honestly, there's there's a direct line between, you know, actors of today and shaman of, you know, thousands upon thousands of years ago because they they functioned they had a very similar role in terms of 
you know, what they were expected to do. The shaman's Mm -hmm. point was to kind of like go into a trance and embody the character of the dead in order to speak to them or to, you know, speak for them or to embody the, 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 you know, that's why they wore animal skins so they could become the Mm -hmm. animal the hunters were trying to find. So it was a way of like, uh, it was a way of building empathy between, you know, the, the hunters and the prey and whatever. So the the shaman was an actor in many ways and their channeling of different, of different personalities, spirits, if you will. um, That's something that carried over and as it still survives today in many different forms. And one of them is acting, whether actors know, that or not that's the tradition that their discipline Mm -hmm. grew out of yeah so so it makes Uh, sense that theaters are just swimming with spirits because it's swimming with sensitive to them it's yeah because that sort of person like shaman you don't just decide to become a shaman it chooses you and most actors feel the same way about their career right yeah um you know, and it's, I've said this before as well, but it's just we exchange energy. That's mm-hmm. what we do. Exactly. And, you know, you can't, energy, it's science, cannot be created or destroyed, but you can't exchange it with somebody. Mm-hmm. And if there's a different energy that you're picking up on because you are sensitive, because if I'm picking up your energy because I need to play this scene with you, if there's a different energy in that space, you pick up on it. You just pick up on it. It's mm-hmm. like you walk into a room and you know if those people hate you or not. It becomes pretty clear pretty quickly without anybody saying yeah. anything. That's that energy. So I think, I think these it's... stories must be real for a number of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. But one that stands out the most is thanks to that article by Andrew Dixon mm. that set the scene, right? Mm-hmm. Beyond Carter's experience, he writes, Nigel Planer, who starred alongside Carter in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, considers himself a skeptical believer. Interested by the multiplying tales about Drury Lane's star cast of ghouls, he took a tour with professional ghost hunter Roger Clark. He was surprised and, one senses, mildly alarmed by (laughs) what he found. Everyone in the theater had some kind of experience. They think they saw the man in gray or they heard a door slam when no one was in the building. So this is someone on record stating that he has heard the first person accounts that back up the stories we've heard. When you add all of this together, it seems to me that this is one very haunted theater. Oh, perhaps perhaps it's one of those rare things that actually deserves the title of most haunted. Yeah, it's, if not most, it's real fucking. <laughs> real fucking haunted. <laughs> can, that, can that be a new designation? <laughs> is it America's like real, real fucking? fucking haunted house. Yeah, it may not be the most, but it is real fucking haunted. It's real fucking. Uh, and so that's, and there's uh, t- there's one of the British ghost hunting shows. I think they did a, uh, some stuff there. But again, that's the Theatre Royal Drury Lane in London. Ooh, I want to go sometime when, when Americans are allowed into the EU again. Out of the United States. <laughs> That'd be nice, huh? Thank you. That want... that cheered me up so much. Yes, I want to go glad. refill my drink, and then we'll get into yes. my very, very, very dark, not pleasant story at all. I'm so ready. Me too. All right, I'm back in a sec. I'm a beverage. Okay. Hey, guess what? What? It's our one and only commercial. I love it's that. It's new. I love that we only have one commercial, and it's for us. Yeah. It's new for June. So this is for our Patreon. Uh, We're going to try to make this one shorter than last time. (laughs) (laughs) So we can get to the good Uh, shit. So we can get to the good stuff. But uh, please join our Patreon. We appreciate everyone uh, who has already joined. If uh, you can, we appreciate any support so that we can remain commercial three. Free. <laughs> commercial free. <laughs> for free. Three. For the podcast. Free. So that means yeah. no commercials except for this one for the podcast. Um, 
you guys really help us and uh, we really, really appreciate it. We have a Discord that's available uh, depending upon the tier. You can go to patreon.com slash ghoulintentions to find out those different tiers. If you choose the Discord tier, we have two Discord chats per month. Yes. We'll have uh, what days are those, Michael? Uh, this month, it'll be June 16th for the uh, Phantasms, correct? Or no, for... for no. That's, uh, sorry, June 16th will be the All Skate. <laughs> and uh, as we like to call it, where everyone on the Discord can can uh, come and ask us questions. And uh, the one for the Phantasms will be June 30th. That's uh, Both times will be at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. That's and, right. And uh, it should be a blast. It should be. So uh, if you want to join the Discord chat, you have to be on one of those Discord tiers. I think they start at $8, um, but you can join several different types of tiers. So go check that out. Please support us. We appreciate everybody who is so supportive. And don't forget to continue sending your stories to ghoulintentions.com on the menu. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we're back. <laughs> and we're back. Ooh, I have my, that I must have, have my, been so long. I have my beverage. Jingle it so people know. What are you drinking? Gin and tonic. I need a gin and tonic for this story. I actually should have made a martini, but it, I don't want to bring a martini glass into the booth because they, they spill too easily. That's, yeah. I am drinking so top um, heavy. the uh, Xavier for kids. It's the sparkling apple juice. <laughs> That's what <laughs> But the sparkle can make you, at least you can pretend you're drinking, you're drinking champagne. Yeah. Here's what's going to happen is that I've had kind of a big day up until, mm -hmm. you know, we're mm -hmm. done. And so I know after we're done, I will be done. <laughs> if so I start like, drinking I'm... now, oh yeah, then you'll then be, I'll just you'll be done drinking. before you're done. I get it. Yeah, and then I'll go to bed at six, <laughs> which doesn't sound that bad now that I'm saying it out loud. Oh my god! Like okay. why not? I could totally do that. So, oh, anyway. so okay. I love it. So okay, so do you want to talk about uh, where we got the idea for this topic? Well, Michaela's back again. Yes. Uh, on our on our phantasm tier. Uh, so good to have Michaela of, back. Yes, so good to have Michaela. Uh, always, always good to have Michaela around. And um, she gave she gave us a lot of information. She um, did. She did great research about a topic. And so, oh, air quality alert! Ding. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> the sandstorm is still outside. Yeah. Um, so this was her one of like something that that she recommended and had done a lot of research for us. So I turned that over to you, and you went. I went off. crazy with it because like I wasn't even as like seriously just as uh, late as yesterday. I wasn't sure what I was going to do this week. Everything I thought about doing just didn't quite. I was in a mood, you guys. And, you know, sometimes you're like, I know I would love this story on any other day, but right now I'm just not in the mood for it. And Jamie was like, It's like what sushi. About sometimes I'm really in the mood for sushi, yeah. but sometimes it's like, I just can't. Right. And so it was the same thing. And so I just was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. And I'd done such a deep dive on the men in black the, for the week, uh, the weeks prior that it was like, oh, how can I follow that up with something? I want to do something dark. I was definitely in the mood to do something dark, uh, but couldn't find anything that was reliable. And then Jamie shot over Michaela's research and I was like, Oh, well, let's look into this. And Michaela, uh, my love, I just want to tell you, you did fucking amazingly because I was able to find all your sources and and consult with them and cross-reference them with other sources. So you got pretty much, uh, not even pretty much, you got all the facts you 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 touted correctly. So good on you. Also, Yay, Michaela. 
it painted such a such a great story. I shouldn't say great because it's so horrific, but it's so great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a horribly I wonderful. I shouldn't say great, story. but I'm gonna. So my topic, uh, and I'm I can hear Michaela like squealing from here. <laughs> uh, I'm doing the haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. Uh, in Indiana. Hmm. So uh, it's quite a deep dive. So I'm going to just tell you now it's going to be a two parter. Uh, okay. So there's a lot of backstory uh, and it all happened relatively recent, like within our lifetimes, Jamie. Uh, hmm. You know, well within our lifetimes, actually. So, like, not only the hauntings themselves, but the things which caused the hauntings uh, hmm. all happened just like within the, la- within the last 30 years. Wow. Right. Okay. So uh, before I get started, my sources, in addition to Michaela and her awesome research, I used Wikipedia. There's a podcast called The Crime Junkie, which I highly recommend, although several mm. podcasts have done uh, uh, their take on this topic. So there's there's no dearth of them out there. Uh, also, there was an A&E investigative report documentary specifically titled The Secret Life of a Serial Killer, which aired in 1997, which dealt expressly with this topic. As much as I hate to admit it, uh, I do reference an episode of Ghost Hunters. It's Ghost Adventures. Excuse me. Ghost Hunters, I like. Ghost Adventures. And, uh, but the the uh, the bulk of my information comes from a book uh, called The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm by Richard Estep and Robert Graves. So, uh, trigger warning, this is a very dark story. It involves murder and sexual deviance and, and all kinds of awful stuff. So if uh, you are triggered by any of that or nothing, if that's not your bag, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right. So let's begin. Let me have just another sip of my tasty beverage. No. Uh, (laughs) That was for you, Matt. I love you so much, Matt. He hates when I do that because he's good at his job. I'm not a fan of it either. I know. (laughs) You should never tell me that because now I want to do it all the time. I will make myself a drink just for the opportunity it gives me to make that noise. It's that overly sensitive thing. I can't... Certain sounds and and they, I'm just too sensitive to it, and there's nothing I can do about it. But it's like yeah. nails on a chalkboard. Uh, uh, one of the girls like clicks her teeth together when she eats. <laughs> oh God, yeah, that drives me crazy too. And so I say, don't do that. You're going to break your teeth. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes her stop doing it. <laughs> don't do that. I'm going to break your teeth. Right. <laughs> uh, but I've heard though that when you are more sensitive to stuff like that that the good things you're more sensitive to uh, as well. So yeah, beautiful really, yeah. days are more beautiful or yeah, like peaceful of, moments are a more A good piece of music like that. is that much more, you know, emotional. Yeah. And, yeah. So that whenever, you know, I hear something like that, I have to think, okay, I'm going to be all right because there's going to be a really pretty day that I'm going to love because. Uh. <laughs> all right. Well, let's see okay, how, uh, how, you, uh, how you square with this story. All right. So. Okay. In the early nineties, as long as it's not too loud. <laughs> In the early nineties, <laughs> it's gonna make it a really creepy ASMR like podcast. Um, in the early nineties, the Indianapolis yeah. gay scene had a serious missing persons problem. Young gay men in their twenties, all with similar distinguishing characteristics, were vanishing without a trace. In fact, ten men at least virtually fell off the face of the earth in the span of just three 
years. That's a mm. fucking lot for a gay community in the early 90s because gay communities were not large then, especially in, in not in every town, maybe in New York or San Francisco, but in Indianapolis, probably not. Yeah. Um, well, on a hopping Saturday night in August of 1994, these disappearances just so happened to be the subject of conversation between one Tony Harris and the odd middle-aged man hitting on him at one of Indianapolis's gay bars. Tony, who would later go by the pseudonym Mark Goodyear in a televised documentary for A&E, didn't particularly care for the topic, nor was he especially attracted to the man, but he had a hunch this guy knew something he shouldn't. As this uh, would-be suitor who called himself Brian Smart persisted, Tony's morbid- I've heard this story. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, I'll stop then. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, no. guys. Send in your story. <laughs> no, but I haven't heard it told by you, but I know what you're talking about now. Okay, I have okay, no right. idea, but now so, I do. All right. So as this would-be suitor who called himself Brian Smart persisted, Tony's morbid curiosity got the better of him. He agreed to let Brian take him for a ride. The pair drove north by an alarmingly roundabout way and came to a stately Tudor-style mansion sitting on 18 acres of land in Westfield, Indiana, in Hamilton County. This was his boss's home, Brian told him. Once inside, things got, well, fucking weird. The house, <laughs> uh, first of all, was dingy and cluttered with all kinds of crap. There were lifelike mannequins strewn all over the place in all kinds of mm. poses. Now, Brian explained like to Tony that his boss kept the mannequins around because he just didn't like living alone. But this was a massive That's house. That's not better. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, God, it reminds me of a guy I used to work with years ago that was into real dolls, and he had, like, a whole army of them, and it was just weird. I mean, if that's your thing, that's cool. Just don't tell me. Um, at yeah. the edge of a large indoor pool, this place is big enough to have an indoor pool, Tony okay. claims that Brian got down to business and asked to be strangled with a pool hose. Uh, that was his kink, his fetish. So Tony obliged, choking Brian until he lost consciousness and fell into the pool. Moments later, Brian emerged from the water totally invigorated and singing the virtues of sexual asphyxia. He then convinced Tony to give it a try himself. Don't fucking do this, guys. Just don't. No. Guys, don't. girls, whatever. Don't fucking do it. It's so goddamn dangerous. No, just don't. But... For reasons you can only begin to understand if you were a wayward gay kid squeaking by in the early 90s, Tony did just that. But mm. things quickly went too far. Brian was clearly strangling Tony for keepsies, not just to get off. Tony successfully fought him away, de-escalated the situation as best he could, and negotiated to be taken back into town because he didn't know where he was. Unable to physically overpower Tony, Brian apologized for the quote-unquote misunderstanding and relented. Uh, getting out of the car after another circuitous drive, this time back into Indianapolis, Tony changed his tune and told Brian he was going to go to the police. There were people missing, and he was convinced this guy was the one behind it because he was fucking killing him. Uh, Brian's response made Tony's blood run cold. Who's going to believe someone like you? Now, because, mm. because Brian Smart was an assumed name, the retired police officer turned private detective uh, Tony told about the encounter had very little to go on. Police, very little better, despite uh, casing the section of Hamilton County Tony described, they came up short on anything like a real lead. I mean, Tudor houses on sprawling tracts of land were pretty much everywhere you turned in that area. 
on a Sunday afternoon in late 1995, Jane Baumeister was startled when her young son and his friend showed her a pile of human bones they discovered out back in the woods behind their house. Mm. Now, uh, these bones weren't buried. They were just out, scattered about among the leaves and the brush, like uh, uh, Jane later described as sounding like looking like someone had just laid down and died right there. And these were clearly human bones. There was a skull, and there was a femur, there was a rib. Um, she, when her husband Herbert came home, she confronted him with these bones going, what the <laughs> fuck is this? He laughed I it off. her instinct is like, you did this. <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> well, we'll get to it. He laughed it off and reassured her the bones were just a model from his father's old medical practice. He'd simply toss them out back to make room in the garage. Jane mm-hmm. let it slide, but to be honest, she'd been having her doubts about old Herb lately. The couple married back in 1971, and despite producing three children, had only been intimate six times in their 25 years together. Now, Herb was sulky and erratic at the best of times, but lately his mood swings had grown downright frightening. He wasn't violent per se, but could certainly be difficult and unpredictable. He and Jane made a good living off the chain of Save-A-Lot stores they ran, enough to afford a nice house on a sizable plot of real estate in a very good area of Indiana. Indiana. Um, In 1991, they purchased Fox Hollow Farm on a contract for a modest down payment. The asking price of $979,000 was to be paid off in five years, which they could well afford. It was a perfect arrangement for them. The Baumeisters could also afford frequent vacations. Lately, however... Herb had been insisting that Jane and the kids go off on their own while he stayed home to run the business. Mm. Herbert Baumeister possessed an above-average intelligence, but had proved to be a very poor student when his attempt to follow in daddy's footsteps and become a paleontologist fell through. He just wasn't cut out for college life, it seemed, and dropped out in 1967. Records show that he spent some time in a mental institution during the early 70s, but the reasons are not exactly specified. Life with Jane and the kids had been decent enough. Jane would later describe their relationship as warm and affectionate, if not exactly brimming with romance. Uh, But as young men continued to vanish from the Indianapolis gay scene, the police were at a loss. Uh, But then, out of the blue, Tony Harris received a phone call from Brian Smart. These calls always seemed to come after another man had gone missing. In retrospect, Tony realized Brian was essentially confiding in him, uh, lamenting another play session gone horribly wrong. These calls came from a 90 cell phone, so they were untraceable, meaning the police still had little to go on, even though Tony was keeping them updated. It had been a year since his harrowing in-person poolside encounter with Brian. By chance, Tony caught sight of Brian outside a club and enlisted his friend to follow him and take down the guy's license plate number. Police would soon discover that the Buick this man got into was registered to one Herbert Baumeister. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. You didn't, you, saw, you didn't see it coming? Now, quick side note, there are some major discrepancies in Tony Harris's story. While initially he insists he only visited Fox Hollow Farm once, in recent years he's alluded to a sustained on-again, off-again romantic relationship with Herbert, whom he knew as Brian Smart, and that while uh, he suspected Herbert was killing these guys, he didn't want to be seen as an accomplice, so he kept it to himself and concocted the story that, that Brian Smart was calling him and telling him and, and eventually he found out who he was, but yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't trust this Tony fellow. I think he was maybe a little deep, more deeply involved than just. Well, but also you have to. Uh, I I am a little more sympathetic, I think, to him because 
which is surprising. Um, <laughs> but uh, you think about how long it took for the cops to give a shit about any of these men that disappeared, right? And this is one well, of those to, things. Well, to be fair, to be fair, and I know it seems okay, like that, but to be fair, the police had been trying to find these guys for a long time, but they were utterly gone. Right. And because a lot of these men were transients who didn't have family uh, that had been often kicked out by their own family, like so they, the police had no help coming from anywhere. So the police were, in fact, interested, and we'll see why in a little while, but they had okay. nothing to go on. Because so many of these stories, you hear that the cops are like, yeah, you're gay. That's, that's, the, li- that's the risk you took by choosing this lifestyle, right? Yeah, well, and fortunately, um, what changed that, as far as police uh, detection work was concerned, was the Jeffrey Dahmer case. Because right. that persisted, it came out later, persisted as long as it did because he had been ignored, because gay men saying, this guy well, is trying to kill me, whatever. Dahmer. Not just Well, There's not just so Dahmer, but Dahmer was the most. And Dahmer had happened just in the early 90s, at the beginning of all of this. Yeah. So police in Indianapolis seemed to be, seemed at least to be very sympathetic. In interview, they all say, like, we were really looking and we did as much as we could, okay. but there was nothing to go on. And and we'll see. They they go to some pretty amazing lengths as the story starts going off. So uh, right. to begin with. Well, okay. Let me defend sorry, sorry, him were, a little bit more. The yeah. other thing that I wanted to bring up, too, is that it's already, I mean, the 90s weren't that far away, but it still wasn't a lifestyle that was uh, appreciated or oh, yeah. considered, like, it was a lifestyle. It wasn't, and it was still de facto illegal. They didn't yes, punish it quite yeah. as often and back so, then in most cities, but it was still de facto illegal. Yeah. And if there were drugs involved... If anything that could make this guy seem like he wasn't on the up and up would be reason to dismiss him completely. And so it could be that, you know, no matter, you know, whether he was going to the place to get drugs and that's why he had this Mm -hmm. relationship. That's not the first time we've ever heard a story like that. Very true. Um, Very true. No matter what your, how you identify or who you're attracted to. Mm -hmm. Um, There could have been a lot of other reasons that he didn't want, that he wanted the focus to be on finding what happened and not yeah. so much of what he was doing. Yeah, and, and you're, you could be very right. And so I, I may be jumping the gun by saying he was involved somehow. But I, I do think, I mean, to his credit, this would not have, uh, uh, Baumeister would never have been caught had Tony not gotten involved. So yeah. um, his his help was essential. So, you know, we'll, we'll cut him a break. Um, so once- <laughs> We've decided, Tony, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 but I, I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if there's more to the story than he's telling. Yeah, right. right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's guilty of anything other than just right. withholding information yeah. for his own protection. Uh, so Detective Marsha Wilson, who was on the case, paid Baumeister a visit at one of the Save a Lot stores that he personally managed and had an office in. She describes Baumeister as a very strange man, very tall and angular, very effeminate. She said, also very nervous. Confronted, Baumeister refused to cooperate. Without ample cause for a search warrant, police uh, decided to contact his wife, Jane, hoping to persuade her to let them have a look around on Fox Hollow Farm. But at the words, homosexual homicide, says Jane of her initial meeting with detectives in the back room of the Save-A-Lot, you cannot imagine the amount of life that left my body. Jane adamantly denied that Herb had any connection to the disappearances or supposed killings. The person they described in their profile just didn't match up to the man she knew and loved. She'd never seen her husband so much as raise his voice. He wasn't capable of murder, surely. And without sufficient evidence for a warrant, police hoped to address the impasse by flying over the Baumeister property in helicopters. They expected to maybe spot suspicious mounds of earth, perhaps, or heat signatures consistent with decomposing bodies. Alas, this gamut likewise turned up nothing. 
Meanwhile, Jane and Herbert's marriage was falling apart. Herb had become despondent, his behavior increasingly erratic. He'd taken to living in the mother-in-law's quarters adjacent to the main house above the garage. Amidst a maelstrom of financial woes, he closed one of their stores without consulting Jane. One of their joint accounts began to hemorrhage money for no discernible reason. The mortgage was past due. The electric bill hadn't been paid in months. At her wit's end, Jane filed for divorce. And though she had defiantly neglected to tell police about the bones found by her son in the back Backyard, yeah. she did disclose this information to her divorce lawyer, Bill Windling. Now, when Herbert angrily took their son on a surprise vacation in response to another row about money, Jane became frantic and instructed Windling to tell police about the bones. Together, they invited investigators to Fox Hollow Farm for a chat and a tour. On a sweltering summer day. So if you look, you'll see a femur on <laughs> you'll the left see, side. You'll of see the a tree. femur. On a sweltering <laughs> summer day in 1995, Bill Windling led police to the area behind the house where yet more bones were found. Then, of course, a search warrant was issued and the property turned upside fucking down. The bones were distributed across two major areas, larger intact specimens collected in a compost pile near a stream on the far west side of the property, whereas a number of smaller fragments, including teeth, lay scattered in the woods directly behind the house. These last had all been scorched into tiny fragments in an area just beyond the tree line that looked like a makeshift burn pit. In total, the remains of 11 men were discovered on fire. Fox Hollow Farm, only seven of whom could be positively identified. And while all this was going on, an officer of the court retrieved Jane's son from the lake house where he'd been vacationing with his father. Herbert Baumeister made no fuss about it. The deputy made no mention of the investigation unfolding on Fox Hollow Farm and was not empowered to arrest him at that point because a a warrant had not been issued. But Herb could see the writing on the wall, and he took the fuck off. Now, it's easy to balk at the idea of Herb being allowed to walk at this point, but uh, the remains found on Fox Hollow Farm couldn't be definitively tied to Herbert Baumeister, and detectives feared that acting too quickly would result in the case being thrown out at him walking free. Now, because the bodies had been allowed to rot out in the open and later burned as opposed to just being buried, a legal argument could feasibly be made that there was no proof they died of foul play. DNA testing also was both prohibitively expensive and, this was fucked up, fell to the families of the victims, not the police department. So bear that in mind, uh, it made establishing positive IDs and cause of death near impossible for years. Um, And bear in mind too, that few families of the victims wanted to come forward and claim a known gay man. The vast majority of Baumeister's victims were also transient. So they didn't even know who their family was anymore, right? Or where they lived or where they'd come from. So police didn't know who to call or what what other police departments to contact. So while police were biding their time, collecting remains and trying to build a case as best they could against this very, you know, well-to-do man, Herbert fled to Ontario, Canada, where, on the banks of Lake Huron in uh, Pinery Provincial Park, he shot himself in the head. The suicide Mm. note he left behind neglected to mention the murders, attributing his death to money troubles and to a crumbling marriage. He also pointed out that he'd been careful to load only one bullet into the gun in case a child should find him and decide the gun looked like a toy. 
Uh, another side note here, a Mountie who told Herbert to move on after finding him asleep in his Buick not far from where he would later kill himself, noted that the back seat had been loaded with unmarked VHS tapes. This didn't strike him as suspicious at the time. There was a lot of other items in the car that just made it look like he was moving. But as the tapes were never found, it's presumed Herbert oh. destroyed them prior to shooting himself. And people think now ah. that there were a lot of damning evidence on those tapes. Yeah. Um, Herb's suicide has since passed into legend. There are so many stories and myths surrounding the scene of his death that it's practically an urban legend. Some say he was found in the center of an occult circle. Uh, our old pal Zach Bagans goes so far as to suggest mm. Herb's suicide was a ritual designed to give him power in the afterlife. Uh, some say the gun was never found. Others say he didn't kill himself at all, but was shot and killed by an operative of some shadowy cabal of which he'd been part. Spoiler, it's all bullshit. The gun was found. Yeah. All evidence points to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. They was it, trying to get a, out of having to be held accountable for his crime. That doesn't mean yeah. that there has to be some sort of circle, spiritual witchiness no. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, he he basically Ugh, he made himself Zach. he made himself a fucking peanut butter jelly sandwich and ate it, and then wrote down his he wrote the letter by hand, uh, and then shot himself, and that was that. I mean, you know, it's fuck him, but that was that. There was no there was nothing yeah. more spectacular or theatrical about it. He was he was evil all by himself. He yeah. didn't need yeah. a yeah. ritual to make that yeah. happen. Yeah. Sometimes evil doesn't need a support group. That's right. Um, That's right. But in addition to the remains found at Fox Hollow Farm, Herbert Baumeister is now believed to have strangled at least nine other young men whose Jeez. naked bodies turned up along the I-70 corridor during the 80s and 90s. In fact, the killings probably go back at least as far as 1983, when a man wow. matching Herbert's description was seen leaving a gay bar with Michael Riley, who later turned up dead on the side of the road. So this was years before, almost a decade before he and Jane even bought Fox Hollow Farm. Uh, and during this period, like, I guess they were living somewhere where he couldn't hide bodies very readily, so he would just leave them on the side of the road. And so that's, this is another reason uh, the police were really interested in the disappearances going on in the 90s, because it was like, uh, is this more, is like, has the killer changed their MO? Or like, are we going to find these bodies somewhere? And indeed they did. Right. Now, of course, in the aftermath, everyone involved tried to distance themselves from the tragedy as best they could, not least for the sake of Fox Hollow Farm itself, a prime piece of real estate whose reputation was now very much besmirched. Time passed, and eventually Fox Hollow Farm sold, first to a man who owned a vineyard and who never lived on the site and hoped to subdivide the lot. When his prospects of doing so fell through, the property was bought in 2006 for a whopping $2.3 million. The new owners, wow. the new owners Robert and Vicky Graves, barely had time to settle in before noticing strange things were afoot. They knew the property, the property's history, and opted to overlook it, maintaining the house and the grounds more or less exactly as they looked during the Baumeister era. Not exactly a stretch, since we're only talking about a gap of 20 years, and a Tudor mansion is a Tudor mansion. Uh, but still, Fox Hollow Farm is an oddity in this regard. Few man-made sites where serial killers are known to have done their killing still stand. Jeffrey Dahmer's old apartment complex, for example, was torn down pretty quickly after his conviction. So was the home of John Wayne Gacy. So Fox Hollow Farm has the distinction of being currently the only intact site of serial murder lived in by a family. Um, wow. And for that matter, the original sign, Fox Hollow Farm, still stands at the end of the, <gasps> of the driveway. Wow. Um, and, and Robert Graves, who co-authored the book, I'm getting all this from, or most of this from anyway, 
says that he and his wife like just really loved the farm. It was a beautiful piece of property. Um, and they felt like despite knowing the reputation, they felt like, you know what? But it was lived in for about 20 years before the Baumeisters came there. So there was a whole history before that. Maybe if they, and they felt by, and I'm kind of, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but the sentiment between them was like, look, we can we can come here and and breathe life into the place and maybe kind of help you know the the property recover from its from its history um because it is a beautiful piece of property and the house is gorgeous like it's really really nice i'm not saying that 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 makes it okay to ignore serial murder but that's also not what they're right. doing they're like look it's just standing empty there's nothing right. else that's going on to it so whatever it's not the house's fault it's not the house's fault like it wasn't built by a serial killer uh, as far as we know uh but anyway on to the haunting uh, yes. Robert and Vicki Graves moved in in 2009. At first, the property was uh, work enough without paranormal things to contend with. Wiring had to be fixed, as did much of the plumbing. Varmints had taken up residence in the attic. I love saying varmints. It took two months to <laughs> man. It, it took two whole months to manicure the pastures sufficiently to let the horses roam around. And of course, given the history, there were plenty of wow. trespassers who liked to come on and see where shit happened. Standing in the driveway one sunny afternoon, Vicky caught sight of a young man shuffling across the backyard toward the tree line. He wore a bright red t-shirt and denim jeans. His back was to her so she couldn't uh, make out his face. For all intents and purposes, he appeared to be on a crash course for one of the trees near the drainage ditch. Yet no sooner did Vicky wonder where this kid got off traipsing through their backyard, or why for that matter he seemed so unaware of his surroundings, than she realized the young man had no legs. From the thighs down, there was nothing but air. In the blink of an eye, he vanished. Ugh. Now, Robert, who was painting nearby, saw Vicky's distress and uh, charged for the tree line once she explained what she'd seen. He hadn't seen it himself, but he saw her react to it. No yeah. one, let alone a man in a red shirt, was anywhere Ugh. to be found, and there was nowhere for him to have gone. Vicky quickly parsed this with something unusual that had happened earlier in the month. While she'd been vacuuming in the house, the cord kept yanking itself out of the wall for some reason. At first, thinking she'd simply gone too far and inadvertently unplugged it herself, Vicky plugged it back in and watched as the cord was pulled from the socket by an invisible force while the end attached to the vacuum was perfectly slack. Mm. As if that weren't enough, Vicky, a scientist by training and very skeptical by disposition, felt the overwhelming sense that something was in the room with her and did not like her. She would later count this as her first brush with the haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. A number of similar events followed, but the legless young man in the red shirt was the first outright apparition. Now, one of Robert's co-workers, a guy named... The first apparition. Oh, Ugh. there are so many. It's fucked up. One of Robert's co-workers, a man named Joe LeBlanc, needed a place to crash and was allowed to live in the apartment above the garage, the old mother-in-law's quarters. <clears throat> now, Joe knew the history as well, and, and Robert and Vicky made it very clear, like, you do know what happened here. And serial killer, actually, he for the last, last few months of his life, he lived in that fucking apartment away from the rest of the family. And Joe, honestly, is a young guy, and he kind of relished the idea of living on such an infamous piece of real estate. But on the first night, 
had the most intense nightmare of his life. He dreamed he was running desperately through the woods, being chased by something evil and unseen. He bolted awake in such a panic uh, and such a headache that he very nearly packed his things and left that night. Later in the week, while Joe was uh, watching, uh, watching, washing dishes in the, uh, the kitchen of his apartment, he heard a harsh, persistent knock at the door, only to find no one there. Shrugging it off as, okay, what the fuck, he sat down to watch television. Suddenly, he saw a flash of movement out of the corner of his eye. The feeling that he wasn't alone began to creep into his awareness. This persisted even after he turned the place upside down looking for a possible intruder. He was that convinced Ugh. someone was in there with him. Yeah. Sometime uh. later, sometime later while Joe was walking his dog, Fred, he heard a rustling sound from the woods. Fred tore off toward the tree line in a frenzy. The figure of a man was walking away from them and into the woods. He wore a bright red t-shirt and jeans, uh, and you guessed it, his uh. legs faded to nothing past the thigh. The young man uh. vanished. Fred, meanwhile, flitted barking into the underbrush, bound and determined to pursue whatever this was. Joe took the flashlight he, he tended to carry around the property with him on and, and uh, <laughs> contrary to every instinct in his body, waded into the trees in search of Fred. After making some headway through the low-hanging branches, Joe swung his flashlight beam to the left. Standing no more than 20 feet from him was the man in the red shirt. <gasps> ah! Joe fucking ran for all he was worth and suddenly realized this was his nightmare. He was living the mm. fucking dream he had had his first night living in the apartment <gasps> oh, above the garage. No! Luckily, uh, you'll be happy to know he was fine, and Fred yeah. followed him out of the woods into safety. <laughs> so the dog was okay, too. Now, comparing notes with Vicky, they determined the figure had been walking in the same area, had it even disappeared in the same spot as Vicky's apparition when she saw it from the driveway several months before. Mm. The persistent knocking at the apartment door returned a few nights later, rousing Joe from a deep sleep. He was pissed, and he called out, thinking it's got to be you know, Robert or Vicky. And when he said, what? Then no one answered. So he kind of stayed in bed for a while, kind of freaked out going, oh, fuck, it's something else. It's the thing. It's the thing, shit. But the knocking continued and he finally got pissed and he angrily threw open the door. No one was there. But the knocker itself was floating at a 90 degree angle as ah! if in defiance of gravity. In defiance of gravity as if being held in place by an unseen hand. Right oh before God. his eyes, the knocker rapped sharply one last time before <gasps> coming to rest. <laughs> Joe gently closed the door, <laughs> went back inside. Now Fred, his dog, was now cowering under the bed and would not come out. As Joe was trying to coax him, the dog kept looking behind him at something Joe couldn't see. I don't like it. Suddenly, the front doorknob began to turn. And in the book, it's described mm. as an old doorknob, so it's very squeaky, and it needed, yeah. he describes it as badly needing WD-40. Uh, so it's like he's hearing this, like right out of a fucking ah! horror movie. So, so the doorknob began to turn, and before Joe could do anything, uh, he turned and looked, and the door exploded open from this gust oh, of wind. Yeah. And it had not been a windy night. It, this, this cold air run through, bringing uh, all these leaves and shit with it. And the, the door banged against the, the wall with such force that it left a dent. Um, and before Joe could process any of this, a man ran <gasps> from behind him in the apartment ah! and made for the door as though his life depended on it, disappearing only <gasps> a few steps outside the doorframe. 
gobsmacked as he was, Joe noted this was a different apparition than the one in the woods. For one thing, he was dressed differently. And for another, he had a look of absolute stark fucking terror on his face. Um, Now, much later, Joe would see that face again on television. He was watching a documentary about Herbert Baumeister when a photograph depicting one of his victims came up. Joe knew immediately this had been the man in his apartment above the garage. Oh my God. Now what's more <laughs> what's more terrifying to consider is the fact that Joe rather fit Baumeister's taste in men. <gasps> um, this was driven home one night while Joe was sitting on the edge of the indoor pool. He felt a pair of ice-cold masculine hands at his throat. Breaking free and spinning around, Joe saw no one. The Graves boys and their friends were on the other side of the pool, completely oblivious to what was going on. A few minutes later, as Joe was swimming, he felt the same hands try to hold him under the water. He thrashed free and demanded that everyone get the fuck out of the pool. Playtime was over. He never swam or even went into that indoor pool area again in his fucking life. I bet not. Joe Joe continued to be the center of the haunting for the next several months. Knife gouges mysteriously appeared in the wall of his apartment that hadn't been there before. He would repair them and they'd appear again. Attempting to play amateur ghost hunter and catch an EVP, Joe once asked, with a tape recorder in hand, if anyone was in the room with him. And though he didn't hear it at the time, upon playback, the words, the married one, came through loud and clear. Joe continued to see figures in the woods, but not the red-shirted young men. Indeed, he said these figures were dark, blacker than black, and he wasn't the only one to see them. Yes. And with that, I will save all the rest until oh my God. next week. How is there more? <laughs> There's so much more, <laughs> Jamie. I'm only like, I'm not even halfway through the goddamn book oh my yet. God. In this book report, okay. as it were. So yes, uh, such a good touch. So, so terrifying. So fucking yeah. terrifying. And very believable. Yeah, the the running from behind you. Yes, can you fuck it? I'm just, I got a heart attack oh, when I read that. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, holy yeah, shit. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. All right. You need a drink now, don't you? Something a little stronger than apple juice? I do. Something a little sp- than sparkling apple juice for kids. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of options then. Yeah. I don't know if you heard there was a little bit of a, I heard like a high pitched noise. So I, I uh, texted Serafina downstairs. She came upstairs. This is all through text while you were telling your story. <laughs> um, <laughs> to check, and Callista's taking a nap in the room next to me, and apparently she saw a shadow <sighs> and was crying because she saw a shadow. So I'm going to have to go check on her and see what that is. And it's that thing where it's like she may have, but she's also dealing with a lot of fear when she's by herself. Yeah. And so... It's, I don't want to be like, you didn't see a shadow. That wasn't anything. You're crazy. You know, I don't want to do that, but I do want to. You just have to teach her how to be brave with the shadow. Yes. Really take the the threat seriously and teach her how to handle it. Yeah. Yeah, I think is, you know, the best way to treat a child's fear. Yeah. Well, (sighs) it's, it's all, it's all fun and games till she's like, I'm not going in there again. We'll see see how that goes. But yeah. Uh, Mm. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for your story. And thank you, Michaela, for the recommendation. This is so great. This is such a great deep dive. 
Uh, it will be, I think by the time this comes out, though, we'll probably have already done our, our chat tonight for our patrons. Oh, that's right. We have the chat uh, tonight. phantasm thing mm, tonight. Mm, so that'll mm, be really mm, fun. Mm. Looking forward to that. <laughs> um, and then we'll have next week's announced, uh, next month's announced on our next um, probably episode or something soon, soon. <laughs> we're just gonna go with soon, soon. um but anyway soon. yes thank you everyone for listening Very i much. cannot wait to hear the rest of that story oh my god it's so good not excited about waiting a week for it but <laughs> um, but anyway i have to do something good too to get to yeah, but yeah. um but anyway yes thank you everyone uh ghoulintentions.com please send us your ghost stories if you have any spooky ghost stories theater ghosts or anything like that um let us know uh we'd love to hear them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i guess that's all i got yeah stay that's... stay safe stay sane and remember it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with the lights, with the lights on, on.